Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. So here we are again, the conclusion to the tale of the Enchanter of Pengesic. I'm going to keep the recap as short as possible here. I'm thinking that if you're still here after two episodes of this, you might have been paying attention to the story. We're two episodes into the Enchanter Pengesic, and quite a lot has happened, and we still haven't seen an Enchanter, and honestly I'm beginning to feel like I might have misled you here. But if you've been desperate to hear about one, I promise in this episode we will get to it. Though if that was the only reason you listened to the last two episodes hoping to hear about an Enchanter, I'm genuinely very sorry. Now, lots of non-Enchanter stuff has happened, so let's have a quick factual recap. We started with all-round bad guy Lord Pengesic, who murdered his local wife and his lover from the eastern land of Agrabah. As we open our story, his two sons from those respective relationships have joined together. Arlef, son of the Sultana of Agrabah, recently came into possession of a magic sword that his father had dropped in Cornwall. He's now sailing back to his homeland to regain his mother's throne with said magic sword, which, small aside, allows you to win any fight you're in. A handy MacGuffin, that one. With him is his half-brother, Marek, who had an unpleasant run-in with the scheming Lady Godolphin, our villain of the second part of the story, who, even though Marek doesn't know it, has, as the events of today's episode take place, already been toppled from a position of power and sent to live in a tower and become literally as well as figuratively ugly. Hope you're keeping up with all this. The brothers, Marek and Arlef, are sailing away from Cornwall on two ships, one of which is a stolen pirate ship filled with treasure. The pirates did try to sell Marek into a life of slavery, so I suppose it's fair. And they're off to fulfil Arlef's destiny. Oh, and Marek's non-biological brother, Ufa, is also there? Which matters, I guess. So with that very high-level overview complete, let's fly over the ocean waves. We see a ship traversing the beautiful blue of the sea. We swoop lower and lower, circling, until we're on the deck with our band of adventurers. Marek was intrigued to hear tales from the captain about the land of Agrabah, about its riches, its politics, and also about its magics, which seemed to rival even those of Cornwall, positively stuffed full of enchantment as that county was. He endeavoured to learn as much as possible on the journey. Asking lots of questions. What's the Agrabarian word for, do you want to have a wrestle? Are there sand witches there? You see, because I want to learn about magic, and also the sand, and I'm hungry. And at every port they stopped in, he would ask, are we there yet? There were some extended stops along the way, where they used the pirate treasure to purchase military hardware and mercenaries. But eventually, after many weeks' travel, finally reached the land of Agrabah. The land was a stark contrast to the wet greenery of Cornwall. A hot desert place, but also far more busy and full of life than anywhere those rural lads could have imagined. Even the smallest towns of that place rivaled the greatest cities of England, and the capital was a veritable cosmopolitan metropolis teeming with all kinds of entertainments, excitements and danger. The food was quite simply incomparable, and the two Cornishmen quickly found that their taste buds had never seen any real use until now. Flavour! Everything had flavour, and the two revelled in trying every new dish, brimming with countless spices they'd never even heard of before, much to the amusement of their companions. And next, 
You might well be expecting there to be an epic tale of intrigue, battles, possible unexpected setbacks and costly but magnificent triumphs about how Arlof won the hearts and the minds of the people of that land. His upbringing as a simple sailor giving him the common touch, how he battled an array of enemies set against him and how Marek, with his noble heritage, taught him of the arts of rule. How Ufa did Arlof's slow-born thing but a bit less well and was there about how the ship's captain provided the younger men with wise and sage advice and perhaps about a dramatic showdown with the usurper who had defeated Arlef's mother and Lord Pengesic all those many years and episodes before and it's safe to say we should imagine something like that happened because it must have but in the actual story I'm working from conquering this entire country turned out to be Super easy, barely an inconvenience. Arlef had his glowing sword, and his being the secret heir to the kingdom shtick worked a charm. In an indeterminate but certainly not lengthy period of time, all the warring factions had been defeated, and Arlef reigned supreme as sultan, running his new country as efficiently as his father had a ship. And despite language difficulties, his half-brother Marek was his closest advisor, granted dominion over the chief port of the country, because being in any way qualified for the job you were doing was apparently not a prerequisite for rule in medieval monarchies. Though, now I think about it, it's not in modern parliamentary democracy either, so maybe I shouldn't throw too many stones. They were the rulers of the country now. Go team! Even if this all seemed pretty sudden and a little bit of a letdown but I don't really have the budget to do justice to the epic battles that must have taken place. So maybe it's for the best, but just imagine. And so, what a wonderful reversal of fortunes for our lowly raised but noble-born heroes, apart from Ufa, who was lowly raised and lowly born. The country of Agrabah was theirs. And Arlef was finally fulfilling what had always been his destiny, even if he had only found out about it approximately five minutes ago. There was a lot to do with Sultan, and he threw himself into the all-consuming job. But as for Marek, though he was governor of a city, which was great and all, well, there was a castle that was rightfully his thousands of miles away, an unfinished business there. His stepmother, the witch of Fradham, and Biffa, who, the effects of the love potions having worn off, he was beginning to suspect. They all had one thing in common. No, not that they were women and thus probably evil. No, they all, to a greater or lesser extent, wielded magic. And here in Agrabah, the use of such magics was not as shrouded in mystery as it was in Cornwall. In Cornwall, the clergy might use a bit to lay ghosts, but the church disapproved strongly of all other magic and tried as hard as they could to stamp it out. So the only humans who used it were villains and outlaws, though the mermaids and the piskies did their own thing, of course. But here, in the enlightened East, while magic was still not exactly commonplace, you could find wizards, mages, sorcerers and the like, male and female. There was another land, which I will not create a name for, not too far distant from Agrabah, which had inhabitants who were especially renowned for their skill in the mystical arts. And after boring of rule, Marek began to dearly wish to learn more of the ways of this place. On discovering his brother's desire, Arlef wasn't upset that he hadn't stuck with his job. Though Arlef had quickly repaid the debt in kind, Marek had still saved his life, and Arlef would be forever grateful for the lifeboat services he had offered what seemed like a lifetime ago. He was happy to furnish Marek with a generous bursary, letters of instruction and a sabbatical to pursue his desire to learn magic. The grateful Marek set off, leaving the foreign land of Agrabah for an even foreigner land and some significant character development which awaited him there. Oh, and Ufa came along with him as well, because he did, showing less and less agency with every action he takes and becoming more and more a shadow of Marek. Mm -hmm.
Now, what happened in this magical land is about as fleshed out as the civil war that Arla fought him. However, we are fortunate in the place and time we have lived to have been afforded opportunities not just to witness many montages of improvements in a generic skill, but to have specifically seen many montages showing improvements in proficiency with magical skills. I'm not going to mention any specifics, but there's a genuinely significant amount of representations of magical improvement and schooling that exist in the current cultural milieu. So, while the details aren't in the original story, you can film most of it in yourself. But just to... But just to give you a taste of how it probably went down. Flash. Marek and Ufa are meeting a wise-looking bunch of people in a barren desert. They talk. They plead. And, after a while... A woman waves her hand, and where there were simply sand dunes a moment before, a city appears, spiralling minarets, lush greenery, perhaps even the odd flying carpet. The scene changes several times in quick succession. In each, Marek is carrying a pail of water from a well to what seems to be his master's house, many miles away. Evidently he's doing this day after day after day. At first he seems happy to do the task. Then he gets angry about it. This wasn't what he wanted. He wanted to learn magic. But then, as the scene repeats, he gets increasingly serene. In the final of these scenes, Marek's beard has grown long, and he looks truly happy as the man we take to be his master accepts his daily delivery of water. His master takes the water from him and says, Now you are ready. Flash. Marek and a bunch of other students of all nationalities and races sit cross-legged in a temple as a woman reads from a great unclassed leather-bound tome in front of them. The book seems to glow, sparks emerge from it, and then the room darkens as, impossibly, a shadow emerges from the pages, all spindly limbs and evil grins, and it turns to look at the students. Flash! The scene changes. Marek is staring at a lamp on the table, but the strained look on his face shows that he's undergoing considerable exertion. Beads of sweat roll down his forehead. He collapses to the floor. Nothing else happens. Flash to what appears to be the same scene, but later. He's recovered. He's staring at the lamp intently. We can see focus, see the pressure, and this time... The lamp rises a few millimetres from the table, seemingly unaided. Marek lets out a triumphant yes, and the lamp falls again immediately. Flash. There are magical battles, and days spent balancing on a pole, nights spent reading, first by lamplight, then by a glow Marek summons himself. Mischievous imps make an appearance somewhere, and by the end of it all there is some scene that establishes Marek's mastery of the art. His master smiles at him, shakes him by the hand says, you're an enchanter, Marek. Yes, there we have it, the enchanter. Oh, I'm glad we've got here. Oh, and Ufa is kind of there as well. Not really being a mage. I don't know what he's doing. He's being happy at Marek's success and stuff. Now, there is also another angle to this montage, interspersed with the scenes we've just gone over, of Marek's interaction with a fellow student a native of this country, and importantly, a female student. Probably they start out as rivals, each believing the other to be an idiot or annoying, but in time some great magical test they are forced to undergo together gives them a deeper understanding and respect for each other. They find themselves studying together, spending more and more time wandering the gardens together, defeating the evil student in the class together. There's always one evil student in a bunch of student wizards. And then, just before they graduate, they realise they've fallen head over heels in love. Now that might not be how many real relationships develop, but who am I to ignore these grooves worn so well by narrative trope? And rather than being called away to different destinies... After they had both learned the magical arts, they were married. In the text of one version of the story, Marek's wife, who is unfortunately unnamed, is described as so. She was rich, beautiful and gifted with many rare accomplishments. And I'll let you decide how to interpret that description. 
Oh yes, and lest I forget, at around the same time another very important event happened. Because Ufa, completely coincidentally, also found true love. With the chief handmaiden of Marek's wife. And they got married as well. Because that's just the kind of thing that Ufa did. Oh, that Luigi. Ufa, I mean, yes. Anyhow, back to the main narrative. It had taken less than three years for Marek to learn the knowledge of this faraway country, which isn't even as long as an undergraduate degree, though presumably it involved a lot less pissing around with traffic cones, sexual experimentation, alcohol, or all three combined. Marek and his new wife were very happy, as was Ufa and his slightly lower status wife, and Marek continued to practice the magical art, his fascination with thermaturgy only increasing once his official studies had stopped. For a few years, things were peaceful and relaxed. Though the country was rich in gold, jewels and many other precious substances, one thing it lacked was tin. And so there were needs of traders to journey to Cornwall, as Arliff's adopted father had done. And the new captain of that ship, who had helped bring Arliff to Agrabah for his revolution, had picked up news of what had happened to the Pengesic family at the castle. And after great delay, this news made its way to Marek. His father was missing, assumed dead. His hated stepmother was gone, locked away. The servants were clearly in desperate need of a lord to rule over them, because without that they'd clearly be lost. How awful it must be for them now with no one to tell them what to do. And though Marek was generally happy in his life, when he received this news, a sudden bout of the most intense homesickness washed in a great wave over the new Lord Pengesic, as such he was with his father presumed dead. While he had met his wife here, it had always been his intention to return home, and now he was gripped by a desire to do so at the earliest possible opportunity. But of course there was a problem. How to convince his wife to leave this eastern paradise, full of magic, wonder, her friends and family, wealth, comfort and all the trappings of a good and fulfilled life. And how would he do that? Well, amongst his many talents, apparently the young Lord Pengesic, as we'll call him now, was a master marketeer. Such was the slant he managed to put on his relatively cold, rainy and rocky peninsula far away from the civilised countries of the world. I'll quote verbatim from one version of the tale here, as it's so beautifully put. He told his wife how, in the pleasant land towards the setting sun, gentle showers descended all summer long, like dews distilled from heaven, and kept the fields ever verdant. How crops succeeded crops throughout the year, which was like a perpetual spring, compared with the arid land in which they then dwelt. He said how hills and dales were covered with fat herds in that happy land, how, by a process unknown in other lands, a liquor was there brewed from grain, which made those who drank it as strong as giants and brave as lions. How the Cornish people merely washed the soil of their valleys and found metals more precious than silver or gold. Besides, continued he, I have a strong and fair castle in a green valley by the sea. I will build thee a bower by the murmuring shore, where we will have delightful gardens and everything for pleasure. Well, that is some sales angle. Right up there with calling Greenland Greenland, that. And, of course, after hearing that, the new Lady Pengesic was, naturally, pretty convinced. Now, I also like to think that she had a broader view of things. She probably wanted to travel. She clearly loved her husband. And also, perhaps she understood that as two powerful enchanters, the couple in Cornwall could be very big fish in that small pond as it would prove to be. Whatever she actually believed, the two of them were soon setting off to reclaim Marek's birthright. And they were not light packers, real kitchen sink people. They took a great many magical tomes, ingredients for spells, candles, amulets, and a vast array of other occult paraphernalia. They stopped off on their way back to see Sultan Arliff and his magic sword. He was slightly surprised they were returning, but of course supportive of people reclaiming their ancestral homes. He gave them some more stuff to take with. Gold, jewels, fine fabrics, incense, spices, pearls, and all the other things they wouldn't have access to in Cornwall. And he sent them off on one of the finest ships of his fleet. 
On the deck of that vessel, the lady played the harp and she sang, as was her way. And her beautiful voice attracted the dolphins and fishes to them, kept the weather fair, quelled thoughts of aggression in pirate crews and frightened evil spirits well away. And after an easy voyage, six years or so after he had left, Marek sailed into the harbour at Penzance, with enough wealth to buy half the county, a library richer than that at Oxford University, and all the trappings of the mysterious East, including a beautiful bride. It's unsurprising to say this aroused some attention. And on the return to his castle, celebrity status beckoned. Everyone liked a local lad done good, and Marrick was Lord Pengesic now. But despite being a son of Cornwall, and at one point of course well known for his lifeboat service, his wrestling, his hunting wild horses, the new facets of his life would soon displace the old in the imagination of the population. And very soon, he would become known simply as the mysterious Enchanter of Pengesic. Oh, of course, I forgot to mention, guess who came along with them back to Cornwall? Ufa. And his wife, who were just there, still following Marrick around, I suppose. Let's not dwell on that. Having been raised amongst humble folk, the Enchanter was one of the better sorts of celebrity, and he sought to spread his wealth amongst the population, while hardly leaving himself bereft, of course. And for a while, Pengesic Castle became party central. Not so much for the local gentry, but for all the people of the land. Ultra high class but ultra non-exclusive festivals were the order of the day, and there were great celebrations with bonfires and booze and music and feasting, and in the days, sports, wrestling, of course, archery, hunting and hawking, and in the evenings, the Cornish droll tellers entertained the crowds with many a good story. The new Lady Pengesic took to the party lifestyle, probably being pleasantly surprised at just how far their modest wealth would go in England. And the couple barely missed Persiany Hogwarts at all. Marrick kept his promise to his wife about the changes to the castle, and extensive renovations were undertaken, including not one, but two new towers. Very necessary for the nights where him and his wife would practice their magical arts, looking over both land and sea. The construction of these attracted much interest, for it all seemed to happen without the inputs of the teams of labourers and architects and engineers that one would typically think was required for such an undertaking. There were sounds of building, yes, but no coming and going of materials or people. No one was allowed near the castle when the renovations were ongoing, but understandably it attracted attention. And one visiting nobleman looked at the castle with an eyeglass said to be of some mystical power itself and looking through it he could see a bird of gigantic proportions, seeming to carry an equally large timber beam in its mouth. But take the eyeglass away, and there was just a duck, with a piece of straw in its bill. And in no time at all the castle was transformed, with new gardens and new wings. On many an evening the sound of the lady's harp would drift from the high towers, and the beautiful music was much loved by the Cornish people. This was particularly the case as was intimated right back in the introduction to part one of this story. While the enchanter had a tendency to conjure up spirits, when he got a little bit cocky, maybe made a bit of an error, it was the power of his wife's songs and harp that sent them back to the other worlds from whence they came. The only reason I'm not referring to her as an enchantress is because the story does not. But there is no doubt that this is precisely what she was, perhaps multi-classed as bard. The years passed. As the couple grew older, their want to party became less, and the desire to deepen their knowledge of the magical arts grew and grew, and so they were more seldom seen. Naturally, they extended their lives and their youth, 
Yep, that's right, the secret of eternal youth just dropped in there, all casual-like. Oh, and another thing, they also extended the lives and youth of Ufa and his wife as well. Ufa was running the Pengesic Estates, now that the old steward had passed. That was his thing, seemed alright, he was happy, I suppose. At night, the lofty towers were often lit up with supernatural luminescence, sudden lightning and occasionally the thunderous roar of hosts of spirits and demons which the enchanter sought to bind. The aroma of spices and incense would fill the air for miles around, as did the sound of the enchanter intoning and his wife singing. At times, the mermaids would congregate in Pengesic Cove, partially to watch the sorcery, but mostly to listen to the music. When Lady Pengesic sang in Cornish, as sometimes she did, the mermaids would add their voice to her song, and the calm, moon-dappled sea was filled with the mesmerising sounds of this unearthly choir. The couple remained loved by the community for the wealth they brought, their good nature, and, of course, the fact that they basically became an honest-to-God superhero power couple, saving the people of Cornwall from all manner of supernatural threats. Let's talk about a few of them. First off the bat, an easy one. When they returned, Lady Godolphin was still shut up in her tower, all scaly and horrible. However, she died soon after. But that wasn't the end of her. No, you thought she was gone? In her afterlife, she would have her revenge. And now we have the second vengeful ghost of our story. Oddly enough, that ghost made its way to Pengesic Castle, rather than haunting the place she died, to try and regain her position as a meaningful antagonist to Marek. But ghosts, ghosts, they were like first semester stuff. And with him but a short while of her starting to get to grips with the basics, you know, turning taps, creating strangely cold spots, and filling the great hall with blood and guts, Pengesic had found her, captured her spirit, confined it to a cave on the cliffs, and fixed her ghostly form to always be that of an adder. You know, because of her deceitful nature, and her scales, which were also kind of a deceitful nature thing. Pretty heavy-handed symbolism all round here. So the ghost of Lady Godolphin lived on as an adder, and can apparently still be seen to this day. The churchman who had struggled so much to lay the sultana years before had nothing on Pengesic's powers. And very soon there wasn't a ghost in the area. If they hadn't been properly laying, they were laying very low. Even ice houses containing doorways to alternate dimensions proved no problem for the magics learned in the east. Moving on from ghosts, there was the one-eyed giant who lived on St Michael's Mount. This is a real tidal island off the coast of Cornwall. It's a picturesque, mythical place with a castle and a causeway, which we'll probably return to at some point again on this podcast, such as its role in legends. But for the moment, it's simply the home of this giant. Now, the giant had taken to stealing cattle from the villagers all around. By the rather direct method of striding across the mainland, grabbing a cow, slinging it over his shoulder, accompanied by a comedy-surprised moo, and then returning to his island home. One day our Cyclopean friend made the mistake of doing this to one of Pengesic's cows. Walk in, grab it, walk off towards home. And yet his legs didn't seem to be carrying him towards the mount. The giant was not the brightest, but even to him this seemed unusual. He was walking, but not home. He was walking towards the huge big black rock at the edge of Pengesic Cove, He reached it. He kind of shoved himself up against it, cow still over his shoulders. And there he remained, stuck fast, for the whole of that long, cold winter's night, unable to move a muscle as much as he willed it. His body was not his own, it appeared, and the poor cow was stuck with him, bellowing in his ear all night long. Marek relinquished the spell's control over the giant the day after, but not before beating him soundly with a whip because I guess magical punishment isn't always enough, and sometimes you just have to resort to good old-fashioned physical violence. And after that bruising encounter, the giant retreated back to the mount and remained there for many years, not daring to step on the enchanter's territory, 
his single eye glaring angrily at the castle on many a day. But of course the ghosts and even the giant was just a warm-up for the main event. For while the enchanter was very popular with the bulk of the population and tolerated by the gentry because they had basically no choice in the matter, there was at least one person who really hated him. The one who, before Marek's transformation and return, had been the most powerful magic wielder in all of Cornwall. I'm talking, of course, about the Witch of Fradham. Fradham was a small, unremarkable village a few miles inland from Pengesic Castle. And from this tiny cluster of houses, and possibly one noticeably ramshackle old cottage, the witch had ruled the county in her own kind of way. Exactly why she wanted to do this is difficult to pin down. She may have had a tragic backstory. It was always difficult for women who had any ambitions to prosper in a society where they were expected to raise children, work, and let men get on with the important things. There was no opportunity for an education as Marek's wife might have had. She could have taken up against a cruel world and tried to protect herself and her loved ones in the only way she could envisage, amassing power, causing people to fear, so she was safe. But I'm kind of suggesting these ideas as an apology, because really, we don't know very much about her. And what we do know is that she was just evil. And did evil for evil's sake, in a two-dimensional, madly cackling, gleefully sadistic kind of way. And you know, that's fine too. You do you, Witch of Fradham. Well, the witch was pretty pissed off with having the enchanter and his wife around. Biffa, who was learning more and more of her aunt's art, and whose young love for Marek had died many years ago, was none too kindly disposed to the couple either. And so, in the Witch of Fradham, we have a worthy antagonist, with powers mirroring those of the hero, but like, the bad version, which is a pretty classic story trope we're all familiar with. For a long while, a kind of Cold War situation existed. The witch would curse people, as she had before, for petty revenge to demonstrate her power, because their hateful neighbours would pay her to do so. And the enchanter would counter with magical protections, nullifying the effects of the curses. The witch would call up violent storms to destroy the crops, because she just hated people, I guess. And the enchanter would calm the clouds. Okay, well, the witch had other stuff going on. She would spread disease amongst the cows then. And the enchanter would get all house on them and cure them right back up again. And he'd get them off the cigarettes. The county had never known such healthy cows. Well, all of this made the witch angry. Her reputation dwindled, and the place she'd held in the community, well cemented by fear as it was, was fast disappearing. She could still be seen riding around at night, on her stylish and monstrous steed, a giant cat with fur as black as midnight. But even this dread sight was becoming regarded more as a curiosity than the actual incredibly dangerous thing that it should have been, because the witch's powers had apparently been so very curtailed, and people simply stopped fearing her. The witch complained to Biffa about it all at great length, but she had not become the most feared witch in Cornwall by being a mere talker. She was a woman of action, and after stewing for a while, she resolved to beat this upstart lord and his foreign magics. Kynance Cove, near Lizard Point, the most southerly tip of the UK, is perhaps the most photographed place in Cornwall, apart maybe from the ruins of the magical Tintagel Castle. Waves crash on the small patches of beach that huddle around rocky outcrops, tiny tidal islands and weathered stacks of rock with distinctive looks and names. The Bishop, Asparagus Island, places renowned as a tourist attraction across the UK, if not the whole world. None of this meant much on the stormy night, the witch ventured down to the wild, wet sea there. In the midst of the torrential rain, she set about her dark arts with greater concentration of power than she'd ever before attempted. She used all the magical tools at her disposal, made many an incantation, pledged her soul to dark forces, and then waited in the downpour. 
Lightning struck the spot in front of her, just at the place where the rain seemed to stop. Black smoke rose from the ground, whirled around, and then, with a sudden overpowering stench of brimstone, formed itself into a recognisable shape. Recognisable and awfully unpleasant. The shape of some grim devil. The creature bared its teeth in a grimace of a smile. You rang witch. And perhaps you're imagining that this devil would now look to go and fight Lord Pengesic, and we'll have a real climactic showdown? Well, you wouldn't be alone, but no. Rather, the devil advised the witch how to make two substances. Firstly, a poison that the enchanter's horse could be induced to drink, which would cause it to throw the enchanter. Which sounds kind of a bit meh, but yeah, okay. Second, however, was a potion that rather than being ingested, should be poured over Pengesic once he had been flung from the horse. This would have rather more dramatic effects, permanently placing the lord in the power of the witch. Satisfied with this result, the witch got on with her fetch quest, roaming the countryside on her great black cat, gathering the herbs, animal parts and all the other strange ingredients needed to manufacture these concoctions. She brewed and boiled the potions at midnight under evil stars, and there was dancing and blood and all the usual gubbins associated with dark and powerful magics. It was March, near the time of the equinox. The witch brought a huge tub containing the spiked drink for the horse and placed it in a certain hedgerow-lined lane the enchanter was sure to pass on his way home, our hero no doubt returning from a day of tiresome do-gooding. In the twilight, the witch disguised herself with her magic, disappearing into the shadows of the hedgerow. She was almost unable to contain herself when she heard the sounds of the hooves. Soon she would best her greatest enemy, and the people would once again fear the witch of Fradham. All her energy was concentrated on not simply bursting out in mad, gleeful cackling there and then. The enchanter's mount slowed as it reached the great tub. The beast gave a loud snort. And it stopped. Marrick looked down at the tub, leant over towards his horse, whispered something in its ear. And the creature turned, and with a mighty kick of its back legs, sent the tub flying into the air, carefully prepared potions scattered to the wind. The witch screamed, first in frustration at her plans being thwarted, but soon after in fear, as the now empty tub, propelled by force unseen, knocked against her legs, and she fell straight into it. Marrick was almost unfazed by the situation as he shouted words of power. A whirling vortex of wind whipped up from nowhere. At the centre of it was the witch in her tub, but appearing next to her in a puff of smoke and brimstone was the very devil she had bargained with, who was more alarmed than he'd ever before been in his eternal infernal life. Up into the air, the witch and the devil rose, both shoved into the tub, which changed as it ascended, first forming a lid, and then its form stretching and warping until the devil and the witch were forced together, not in a tub, but in a coffin. Also swept up into the air was the crock containing the other potion, the one that would be meant to bend the enchanter to the witch's will. Clearly the devil had found itself very much out of its league, and the witch with it. The enchanter said a few more words in the tongue of the eastern land, and the coffin and crock were cast out to the sea. And there the coffin bobbed along, followed by the crockpot. And that was the outcome of this grand battle between the witch and the enchanter. All over, almost as soon as it had begun. Things were not quite over for the witch. For sustained by magical means, she remained alive in her little coffin bobbing along on the waves. And she continued to make mischief, stirring up the sea, apparently with her ladle and broom, though the logistics of that while stuck inside a coffin confused me somewhat, but that's what she did. But she was gone from Fradham and Cornwall evermore. 
the Enchanter returned home. All in a day's work. And now, now, finally, after three long episodes, there's not much more to tell. A connection to the lands of the East that had started a generation ago with the previous Lord Pengesic's warmongering ways had turned into something far more rewarding for his sons and for all the people of Cornwall for generations afterwards, as Marrick and his wife, and probably Ufa as well, lived their extended lives over several normal generations. In the early days, they visit the Sultan Arlef from time to time, and his reign was of course long and prosperous, and his subjects lived happy, rich lives. The magical sword returned to its rightful place and Agrabah would remain in his family's hands for generations. Biffa, Biffa continued the ways of her aunt, taking care to stay out of her former love's way, though. She too prolonged her life with magical means, but unlike Pengesic, she did it by stealing the lives of both animals and youths, causing them to wither and die as she remained young. We aren't told the backstory to why, but Pengesic didn't stop this practice. Perhaps he was unaware. Perhaps she had protection we do not know about. Perhaps he still harboured some kind of flame for her. However, after a number of years, local people, growing old as Biffa stayed young, realised what was happening. And one night, they took to the new witch's cottage as she was at work, brewing her hell broth. And they nailed over her door, put turf over her chimney, and she was suffocated by the smoke from her own magics. An awful and ignominious end. And what of the Enchanter and his wife? Their lives continued in a similar vein to that already described for many years indeed. But one day, a stranger arrived in Penzance. He was seen on the high street buying food with huge amounts of gold. By his looks, he appeared to have come from the east. Some said there was a certain resemblance between him and Lady Pengesic. He took up rooms in the town and stayed there for a few weeks, not bothering anyone, simply buying food and occasionally asking questions about the local lords, not singling out the enchanter amongst them. People began to talk, of course, but he wasn't doing anything wrong. He seemed to have money and best not to rock that boat too much. But fishermen reported that the stranger had been seen on the shore at night, sometimes walking along the beach near Pengesic Castle, occasionally sitting on the rocks, gazing up at the building. The arrival of this mysterious foreigner seemed to coincide with the castle falling unusually silent. No spells, no songs, no harp, no spirits raised from Stygian depths. And as for the Pengesics, they hadn't been seen out and about for weeks. It all began to reek of something not altogether right, and despite his wealth, certain people in the town were working up to confront the stranger. But they had not acted by the time, one dark and gloomy night, when the storm which had seemed to have been threatening to break for so long, finally did so. The murk of that night was of a decidedly supernatural bent. Even the light of moon and stars which can be seen on the darkest night was absent. The light from fully lit lamps didn't seem to travel very far at all. The gloom was heavy, suffocating, almost physically manifest, muffling all illumination. Around midnight, the citizens of Penzance saw a red glow appear in the eastern sky. Pengesic Castle was aflame, the new turrets and the old wings alike, all the centre of a raging inferno that seemed to have sprung up immediately. servants made it out, but when asked later they could provide no answers to the source of the conflagration, having been asleep or at their duties when it arose. The fire burnt fiercely through the night, but eventually died down in the morning light. It soon transpired that Lord Pengesic and his wife were the only two unaccounted for. 
From the castle there was not a trace of anything left. None of the books, occult equipment, gold or jewels. All seemed to have been swallowed up by what must have been a most tremendous fire. But there was nothing to be done. The people returned to their homes. The enchanter was gone. And from that day forth, neither he nor his wife was ever seen in Cornwall again. And neither, for that matter, the stranger from the east, who was found to be gone the next morning. It was a few days later, when an old sailor, an old sailor who had been out on the murky waters on the ill-fated night, told the people of Penzance what he believed he had seen in the midst of the fire. Two men and a woman rising out of the flames, up from amidst the falling walls, ascending into the black night sky, faster and faster, and further and further up, until they appeared to be like a shooting star in reverse, ascending off into the night sky, and disappearing forever, with a twinkle. And so, finally, ends the story Chanter of Pengesic. So that's it, the final part, and we are done. I really hope you've enjoyed this story. Before we finish off today, just a few more things to talk about. Firstly, some impressions of mine. I've really enjoyed this story as a whole. It does kind of appear that the events in this episode come out of nowhere, the transformation of Marrick to Enchanter happening pretty damn fast. Just a reminder that there are two sources for this here, 19th century Cornish folklore collector William Bottrell's version and other 19th century folklore collector Robert Hunt's version. And Hunt probably talked to Bottrell. Almost all of the story you've heard here has been Bottrell's longer version. And I'm again going to contend with admittedly little evidence, and directly contradicting the author himself, that on balance the Bottrell version was probably a considerably embellished and structured version of a tale in more general circulation, which was likely closer to Hunch's much shorter version. In that shorter tale, we don't have any of this business with the Enchanter's Origins, which was basically all of episodes 1 and 2 and about the first half of this episode. The Enchanter just turns up and it's not even clear that he's Cornish. In fact, some of the wording suggests that he isn't, with his easternness emphasised. Quoting from Robert Hunt's popular romances of the West of England, quote, Where the Lord of Pengesic came from, no one knew. He, with his lady and two attendants, who never spoke in any but an eastern tongue, made their appearance one winter's day, mounted on beautiful horses, evidently from Arabia, or some distant land. And you know what? When that was how it starts, it probably made a whole lot more sense to call the tale The Enchanter of Pengesic. Now, as usual, I've gone and mashed the tales up a little, and I want to be upfront with you about this. So, while sticking pretty close to Bottrell's version, I actually told the ending from the shorter Hunt story. I really like the mysteriousness of the ending, the questions it leaves unanswered. We're never told who this stranger was, good or bad, where they went, what happened to them. And I like unresolved mysteries at the end of stories, just kind of hanging there, leaving you dangling. However, for completeness, I should probably also discuss the ending of the longer tale, given it's the one that we've been following. It actually ends up being a bit of a contemplation on the nature of immortality. I'll read it verbatim. Quote, the lady, having outlived all her children and grandchildren, became weary of existence in a world and amidst a people that seemed strange to her, all those of her own age being long dead, and wishing to rest with her children, though loath to leave her husband, she often begged him to discontinue prolonging his life, and he, as on former occasions for the last hundred years or so, always promised her to leave the world when he perfected some new essay of his art, which was all in all to him. His wife, however, neglected to take the life cordial, and at length, rested beneath the sod. Yep, she just gets bored of life and stops being immortal. Bleak. And yes, you'll also notice the mention of children there. But it's not really that relevant, they don't really do very much, so I left it out. Now, in that version of the story, the enchanter lives on without her for a bit, but is then killed once again in a fire, 
which starts when he's extracting liquid fire from black rocks, and this is what destroys his castle. I think there's a kind of implication that had his wife still been around, he might not have made such a mistake. It's not a bad ending, but I much preferred the mysterious one, so swapped it out. Now, I said back in episode one, I really wanted to talk about ideas of the Islamic world, or at least the Middle East, and I still do a little. However, I'm backtracking slightly because when trying to place this in a context of such depictions, it's actually much more positive than most Western literature you can find. So I'm going to save most of the analysis of depictions of that kind of world for a future episode. But just to discuss a little the rosy depiction. Now, it's not particularly clear what Middle Eastern culture it's trying to portray here, and Arabia or some distant land probably sums it up quite well. A kind of non-specific Arabian or Iranian country. And that kind of non-distinctive East is unfortunately probably not too dissimilar from many portrayals of those cultures that remain common in Western media to this day, which is why I had Agrabah as a go-to reference point for generic Middle Eastern place. In telling the story, I leaned into the more positive definition, both because it seemed to fit with the Enchanter's story, but also because the early Middle Ages the story is probably set in did have that disparity in power between powerful Eastern states and the real backwater that was England or even its predecessors. This was a time when the East really was a centre of learning and scholarship, and emphasising that idea seemed to fit with the concept of the Enchanter having to go there to learn his magics. Now you might notice that Islam isn't mentioned in the story at all, and that omission kind of fits with many of the more positive views of the Middle East that are given in 19th century portrayals, where Islam is kind of sidelined. Now it's basically impossible to talk about Victorian views of the East without mentioning the idea of Orientalism, which is kind of a term that describes the way that Middle Eastern cultures, which encompasses Arabs, Turks, Iranians, Egyptians and many others in that geographical area, have been horrendously stereotyped as a kind of exotic and often violent opposite to the West. And some of that is certainly present here. These unnamed countries are different and magical places. But there's also a distinct lack of the more common negative stereotyping. And the story doesn't lean too heavily on the otherness. Cornwall is full of magic as well, even if the magic of the East turns out to be the more powerful. But one trope the story is really reminiscent of is actually a much more modern one, which is tied to the idea of Western people finding enlightenment in the East, of Westerners learning the ways of mystical people, and then often becoming very adept in those ways, often even better than those that they've learned the ideas from. While this is a common idea now, it's something that kind of goes back to the cult or philosophy or religion of theosophy in the latter half of the 19th century. This, by not too many twists and turns, leads to a lot of the New Age movements that kind of fetishised Eastern learning. Now, this tale predates the development of theosophy, but there was an idea of magical Easternness which was in the zeitgeist since at least Napoleon's interest in Egypt. And as for this story, bits of it might sound really familiar to you, because it's pretty much the same one as that of magical superheroes that we've seen recently on the big and small screens. Think Iron Fist, think Doctor Strange. If you're not familiar with those, well, they're pretty much exactly this story. Man goes to the East, learns magic, comes back and uses magic. Except that in some way, the Enchanter of Pengesic story is actually less offensive than those examples. By having Arlov, by having the Sultana, the connection with the Eastern lands is somewhat more fleshed out, and the hero isn't just the white saviour. Marek doesn't save the Eastern Kingdom, the Sultana and Arlov do that all alone. So I do find it interesting that this story is a very early example of a more modern kind of Eastern-educated wizard idea, though I can't speak for what the direct influence there might be. So none of that's very conclusive, but I've kind of talked around it, which is apparently how we roll here at the moment. One other thing I'd like to do to place the tale is to mention that when it comes to British folklore, like the last thousand years or so, there are basically three categories of magic users who crop up all the time, and this story has two of them. Firstly, you've got your local wise person, who can also be called cunning man or cunning woman. As the name implies, they're both men and women, 
and they often help heroes lift a curse, defeat an enemy, or overcome a challenge, but usually on a pretty small or a pretty local scale. We covered such a character in the Buried Moon story. In Cornwall, these people have a particular name, they're called Pellers, but there aren't actually any in this story, so we won't dwell on that now, but it's one to come back to in future. Now, the second class is your bad witches, almost always women, and if you are listening to this podcast, you are already well aware of what they're like. They're very much part of the culture now, but they do go back for many centuries, and there are a great many local evil witches, like the Witch of Fradham. There are quite a lot of these just in Cornwall, and the two sources for the Enchanter story feature many more of them. While we're on the topic, there's a museum of witchcraft in Cornwall, and while I've not got there myself, I'm still going to recommend it to you, because honestly, a museum of witchcraft? How can that not be amazing? Go and find out all about witches. Okay, so then you've got a third kind, which is the kind of the Enchanter. Basically, an educated man with lots of books. And the basic story around those is when you read enough, you get magic powers, which is fairly encouraging for someone like yours truly, but for me, hasn't happened yet. And these are almost always men, and they are, by and large, the good guys. Maybe they've got a little too much power sometimes, maybe a bit quick to anger, but broadly, definitely good. I know we've talked a lot about gendered villains last time in the evil stepmother trope, but it does seem to be very stark here. Man learns magical power and becomes great enchanter, lauded by the community. Woman learns powerful magic, and evil witch, ugly, has to hide in cave, basically horrible. Interestingly, this gender divide is particular to English or British folklore at least. There are many evil wizards in European stories. And yes, you can probably find one or two in British folklore, but they're quite rare. While these bookish enchanters who are always putting down witches are reasonably common. Oddly enough, these wizards are often actually named historical people, who then get transformed into these folkloric versions of themselves. For instance, scholar Michael Scott in Scotland the famous navigator and adventurer Sir Francis Drake, and Roger Bacon, a philosopher and a churchman, were all reputed to be wizards, and tales were told of them doing many magical and great deeds, including fighting witches. The not-so-historical Merlin is probably the forerunner of many of these characters, and like the Enchanter, he has a strong connection to Cornwall. So, what's the point of all this discussion? Really mostly just to let you know that this battle between Enchanter and Witch is a very localised version of a tale that's told much more widely. The one way in which this tale is pretty unique is the inclusion of the magical wife. Though she's never referred to as an Enchantress, she is in both long and short versions, and she manages to be kind of magical, and also kind. Which is heartening. Magical couples aren't really a big thing in folklore, and personally I think that's a shame and I'm glad we have some good representation of it here. I'm all for more of it. Though what I really like is a story from her perspective. And kind of abruptly, I think I'm going to leave it there. After three episodes, you're probably pretty sick of it, and while I've got other things to discuss, I've covered the main points now. So, as we leave Pengesic behind, I'm just going to sign off with a Cornish rhyme written down in 1602. By Trey, Paul and Penn... Shall you know, or Cornishman? And we will probably return to places with tray, poles and pens very soon. As I mentioned last episode, I don't intend to do a three-parter again anytime soon. But I would be interested to hear any feedback you have about it, good or bad. So please do leave reviews and all that. It makes a huge difference. When I'm putting together these podcasts, it sometimes feels a bit like speaking into a void. And the odd comment helps dispel that notion. I hope you'll join us again next time when we'll be telling a tale full of mad pranks and merry jests. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. 
The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon.